Hi everyone, welcome back to the Media Mates podcast. My name's Ralph Tucker. Each week I'll chat to somebody I've met from my career in and around the media industry. All of them have such great stories to tell. I'm not Michael Parkinson or Andrew Denton, but I do enjoy chatting to interesting media people about where they've been, where they're headed next, and everything else in between. My guest today is John Redman, media advisor to New South Wales Minister Stuart Ayres. Before joining the government, John worked in the media for about a decade with 2GB, Sky Racing and Sky News. He chats about how a babysitting gig led to his start in the media, working for Alan Jones and Ray Hadley, and the challenges associated with a job in politics. John is very open and honest, so I really hope you enjoy our chat. John Redmond, welcome to the Media Mates podcast. Thank you, Ralph. We're currently sitting in the offices of the Sports Minister... Minister for Tourism. Minister of Trade, Tourism, Major Events and Minister for Sport. Yes, Stuart Ayres. Stuart Ayres, MP. You've been working with him for a little while now? Yeah, just over two years. I um, kicked off with him in uh, April in 2014, which was at the time he'd just uh, been made Police Minister, which um, was a pretty uh, pretty compelling reason to come over and cross to the dark side into politics. So, uh, yeah, at the time he was Police Minister, uh, emergency Services Minister, that's, so that's uh, Fire, SES, Rural Fire Service, and uh, Minister for Sport, which you know, basically ticked a, a few compelling boxes. You're known to me as Bravo, so mm. to call you John is very official sounding. In, now, fact, in fact, I've got to tell you, when Stuart, the politician, uh, calls me John, I'm actually, that's when I know I'm in trouble. I'm universally Bravo, and when I get John, it's because I've done something wrong. So... Would you like to hear the origins of Bravo? Yes, I'd like you to take us through who gave you that nickname and how it managed to stick for so many years. Well, I think it, in my very, very early days of uh, working at 2GB, which was my first job out of school, uh, I came into work one day thinking I was quite cool and had a leather jacket on and my hair slicked back and uh, the first person who came up to me was Ray Hadley and said, what do you think, you're fucking Johnny Bravo? And uh, from there it stuck. And uh, actually, Justin Kelly, who was the, obviously the news director at the time, kept it kept it going. And after that, anyone who called me any differently was uh, I didn't respond. So <laughs> it stuck throughout every job I've had, actually, for better or worse. I'm trying to think when the first time it it was that we actually met, but I think I can actually remember because it was when you'd taken over from another guy called Nick Savick as Alan Jones's <laughs> driver, and you were actually at his farewell. So I think that's the first time we actually crossed paths. So tell me about how you landed that job. Well, prior to that, I was uh, – I should go back to the start and tell you how I found myself in the door at 2GB. Yeah, please do. Um, so when I was at school, I went to the same high school as uh, Ray Hadley's son um, and so we met through there. My mum played softball with Ray's wife at the time, Suze, and from there they'd go out on the drink after the game and I'd sort of tag along with them. And one night um, Ray and Suze actually needed a babysitter for their, their kids and for whatever reason I was the last resort. So I babysat Ray's kids and he picked me up from my parents' place and on the way in the car we were talking about what I want to do, you know, in my in my life. At that stage I was probably in year 11. And I, I mentioned that I wanted to be a cop, which was absolutely true. And I also mentioned I loved radio and it wasn't blowing smoke up his ass. I genuinely wanted to work in radio. And he sort of took it under his chin and said, whatever. Anyway, little did I know about 
when I was in year 12, he'd, uh, he said to my parents on the quiet, if John knuckles down, puts his head down, get him to, um, reach out after he's done his HSC, if he does well, and I'll see, I'll see what I can do. So I, um, after I finished my HSC, I sent Ray an email and, um, he brought me in, told me that, uh, first thing he did was chip me for a couple of spelling mistakes in my letter, um, which didn't go, wasn't the best start. Um, and he basically told me there weren't any jobs going at 2GB, but what he was going to do was he asked me, um, what I did for a gig at that time. And I worked at Macca's at Dural. And he said, how much do you make there? I said, oh, 16 bucks an hour. He said, right. Well, for six months, I'll pay you 16 bucks an hour. What you would have got paid at Macca's out of my own pocket. At the end of six months, if you get a job, great. If not, well, we tried. So he brought in Justin Kelly and said, I want you to, uh, show John the traps around the newsroom. If you need him to hold up a microphone anywhere, anything like that, he's just another set of hands. So I did that for about. Well, for about three months and I went out to jobs and Ray gave me a list to work every day. Um, every, every two weeks I get a, a check, right? Give me a little check. And, um, so I was very fortunate. That's how I sort of got a start. Um, and then after three months, I joined the promotions team. I had to drive around the little black thunder car, uh, sadly for about two years. Um, and then that's when my big break came and I got to, uh, take over Nick Savick and become a chauffeur for the great Alan Belford Jones. Now, tell me about that interest in radio. You mentioned it there that you'd had that growing up. What was it about radio specifically that you liked um, and what made it think that you could make a, a career out of media? From a very early age, I was fascinated by radio. I was fascinated by all media, but radio in particular. I mean, my dad my dad and I would you know, sit in his shed and, and listen, in fact, to Ray and the continuous call team and, and that was how I grew up in the car, it was always radio. It was always the immediacy of it. And all, all my, you know, when people think about, you know, the moments that you remember, you know, where you were, Princess Diana, you know, all those sort of things, to me they're all radio. Oh, I remember hearing on the radio at that time. I remember hearing on the radio at that time. That's To me that's that was the immediacy of, of radio that I that I just loved. Um, so did I want to work in telly? No. Did I want to work in papers? No. I loved radio. So there wasn't really a, another place that I would have tried to to get into, and it was just you know sometimes you know fate works in funny ways, and it was just you know strange that you know prior to to meeting to meeting Ray, I you know didn't live anywhere near where they went to school. It was sort of a, a former life that I I grew up loving radio, and it was just you know as fate would have it that um, you know years later I went to the same school as his kids, and it sort of went from there. Do you think without that you would have pursued it anyway? Oh, without doubt, hundred percent. I I worked out what uh because mum and dad didn't tell me that Ray had got in touch about you know if John you know goes well at school, which to be brutally honest, I didn't. Um, you know if, if John goes well, get him to sing out. Mum and dad didn't tell me that, so I pretty much organised all the things that I needed to do. Uh, worked out there was the um, radio school at Macquarie University at the time. Uh, yeah, there was a few of these things that I was actively pursuing, and I think when when mum and dad you know. Like anything, they you know, radio is not the most fiscally well-off uh, job. They you know were trying to point me in other directions, but when they knew that I was fair income, that's when they mentioned to me that you know there was an opportunity that I could have pursued. Um, so in, in many ways, I've, sometimes I feel like a bit of a um, you know, I, I'm, it, it's not lost on me how fortunate I am that I got the opportunity I did when a lot of people before me, you know, did that, did go through the radio school, did go through university, but I, I really would have done it regardless. And I was just fortunate that I got the opportunity I did. And when you look 
back on that opportunity that you did get, did you have a clear picture in your mind as to what it was you wanted to do? Did you want to be an on-air personality? Did you want to be a newsreader? What was it in the initial stages when you were thinking about a career? What was it that you actually wanted to do? I've always had this fascination with behind the scenes. So not, I didn't want to be on air. I didn't want to be a newsreader. I didn't, I didn't want to be on air. I just loved the idea of behind the scenes, sort of almost like the, the wizard behind the curtain. You know, you know, how does the operation work? And then if you produce it well, what comes on the other side of, um, you know, or the other side of what you produce. So that was always my passion for, for what I wanted to do, which sort of put me in a different league because there was a lot of, you know, a lot of people who come in as a producer obviously want to be on air. Whereas if your one drive is to be the behind the scenes guy, it's sort of, uh, you know, you're only fighting against those people and there's few less of them. When you looked at that, when you got the chance to actually experience what it took to be behind the scenes, did it sort of validate your idea or your dream in, in many ways? Was it what you expected or were there things that were different from, you know, the observation of the outside looking in? I'll be honest, it was everything I it was everything I wanted it to be. You the fact that you are you know, and again, I was very fortunate that the first place I worked at was 2GB where what you do behind the scenes isn't going to, you know, a regional radio station or a community radio station. What you were producing was it was on 2GB. It's going to the, you know, the number one station in Sydney. You know, if you're writing something for, for, for Ray or for the newsroom or something, that's that's what's being broadcast. So it was it was everything I thought it was it was gonna be. You know, I was just like, you know, it was it was yeah, it sounds silly, but it was it was like a dream come true getting to work at this station that I'd you know, always wanted to work at. Um, and, and that's it, the, the behind the scenes stuff. And there are so many people that, um, particularly at, at 2GB when I started in 2005, that were just so incredibly helpful to someone who shows enthusiasm. So, and I did that, you know, there was the times where you'd, you know, you'd say, Oh, can you work on that on the weekend? Yep, of course. Can you do that on the weekend? Yep, of course. You know, and a lot of the time you weren't getting paid for it, but you were happy to do it. And that was the behind the scenes stuff that, if you were another producer, you saw that and you wanted to nurture that and they wanted to help me with that. So um, that 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 was the, the best part about kicking off behind the scenes. Who were the people that were most influential or, as you said there, most helpful in those early days when you first came in the door straight out of school? Straight out of school. Well, uh, first one that comes to mind would be Trevor Long. Well, first day at, first day at um, TGB, he was in the office that I worked in. And he was, as anyone who knows Trevor knows, he calls a spade a spade. And he gave me some pretty no frills advice and things that I'd still stick to to this day. And and like what? Well, mainly if I did something wrong, he wouldn't beat around the bush. If I if I made a mistake, he, it wasn't. Oh, mate, maybe next time you should do that. It was a it was a slap. Um, and you know what? It prepared me for when I inevitably did make mistakes working for Ray or working for Alan or working for any other people that I worked with down the track. So. He was great. Um, one of the one of the blokes who uh, another guy you've spoken to on this great podcast, Andrew Moore. Um, he he's been of all the people, he's been probably almost a mentor to me. He's for a bloke. He he is on air, and obviously I'm not, but he's always taking me under his wing. Um, you know, when I was I was you know 18 when I started at 2GB, and he didn't care. He you know he saw. I like to think that he saw 
a bit in me that he saw in himself. Yep. Um, you know, just wanting to, you know, throw yourself in there. No matter, no matter what someone told you to do, I'd go and do it. And and he would always stick up for me or if there was a job going, um, Sunday Sports Zone started and uh, the producer on that show left and, and Andrew said, oh, you know, Bravo, why don't you come and work on the show? And that turned into four or five years every Sunday working with him and, you know, and then I go and do the stats with him and he was always just looking out for me. If there was an opportunity, he'd he'd uh, embrace it, yeah. And so what did you also learn from those early days of having to be pretty much the jack of all trades or willing to help out and help the station out and be that real sort of team man that you were able to, okay, promotions, you work there and if you wanted to do some stuff from the newsroom, I guess from a development point of view, it really gave you that opportunity to experience radio from so many different viewpoints. Well, that's right. I think, you know, it's a saying that has pretty much been accurate in every job I do. Everyone's replaceable. But if you give yourself enough skills to not be replaceable, hopefully if the job that you are replaced in, you can move somewhere else. And that's basically what happened. Every time I did a job at GB, for instance, I did one somewhere else. So if I was in promotions, on the weekend, I work on the footy. If I was working on the footy, then I'll go and work for you know Alan doing you know copywriting and you know you know photocopying and that sort of stuff. Um, if I wasn't doing that, I'd be doing the phones for Bill Cruz on the weekend. You know, there was always something that I try to keep my foot in in case something fell over. Um, it's know. that fear that everyone in media has that yeah, your job's not going to necessarily be there that next week, so <laughs> you better make yourself pretty. Indispensable. Yeah, yeah. In, in many ways um, because it being the beast that it is, we all, while we all love it, we all understand that it's shrinking. So you better be good at a whole range of things if you want to keep doing it. Well, that's why, and funnily enough, and as I said before, I had no ambition to be on air, but towards the back part of me working at, at, at 2GB, an opportunity came up to do the sideline commentary for, for the football and I wasn't going to get paid for it and I didn't get paid for it, um, which I was completely fine with because it was another, you know, tick that off your bucket list. And I was dreadful. I was so bad. It was it was the world's – I was the world's shittiest sideline bloke. It probably didn't help that I was called Bravo, so people just thought, who's this you know, bloke from the Black Thunder, you know, doing sideline commentary? How many how many tests has he played? How many oranges has he played? So I survived that for about three weeks and, and then decided that, no, nah, I'll never be on air again. So that was one – just indispensable thing that I was happy to tick off my list and never yeah, did again. It, it, it wasn't. It wasn't for you. Talk to me about working for those people that have a high profile and take me behind the scenes there. For argument's sake, what's it like driving the car around Sydney with Alan Jones, the most influential media broadcaster that we've probably seen in the last thirty years? I'll say from the get go, Alan is normal. And he, he truly, when when you when you're driving, and we we would have normal conversations, and you know, you, you, everyone has this sort of Alan has this aura of, well, it's, it's Alan Jones, like, but but you know, it took, probably took about six months for him to to you know warm to me. So quite often, I'd just jump in the car and I'd be looking straight ahead, and then ever so often, I'd you know try and crack a joke or you know, and he'd just yeah basically ignore it because like most of my jokes, the shit house. <laughs> And he would, uh, and f- but finally, I think he, you know, started to warm to me. Yeah. And fortunately, we sort of developed a, a great relationship that we still enjoy today. He, him and I, you know, we still talk. You know, particularly working in in the government, um, or even for a sports minister, he's, you know, he's around quite a bit. Um, but I'll, I'll also say that he 
without doubt, is the most generous human being I've ever come across in my life. Um, for instance, when I was, like I said, a, a Neville, Neville nobody driving him, he would, uh, he would take the piss out of my, my shoes. Like I would have been about 23 at the time, but I was still mm-hmm. wearing my shoes from my, you know, year 10 formal and they were scuffed and bloody horrible. And while I was driving him one day back to his apartment, um, he told me to pull over on Elizabeth Street on a place called Caradonis, just yeah. near where we are now. And and uh, anyway, so Alan jumps out. I'm in a bus zone, so I throw the hazards on, you know, looking over both shoulders trying to see, if, you know, I was going to get told to move on. Anyway, Alan would have been in there for about two minutes, came back out and got back in the car. He said, right, you're going to go home? Then you're done for the day. And I was sort of little doing fist pumps that I got half a day off. Yeah, and he's yeah, like, yeah. right, but I need you to go back via this place and I'm going to sort you over some shoes. I'm like, oh, Christ, you know, these shoes are going to be, you know, $500 shoes. Yeah. So I go into the, the, you know, go back to the shoe shop and I walked in and said, oh, hi, I'm, I'm John. I work for Alan Jones. They've turned it on like I was in Pretty Woman and they've just started like, do you want a champagne, <laughs> Mr. Edmund? Do you, want, do you want a pizza? Do you want anything like this? Uh, and I'm like, what? No. Okay, yeah. So anyway, I was just entertaining it and I sort of just went along with the whatever they were doing and they're putting on the shoes and I'm thinking, this is great, but I'm not going to get these shoes. Anyway, so finally I said, yep, yep, they're great. No worries. So I went to the checkout uh, and they said, oh, that's, you know, 500 and something dollars. And I'm like, look, I've got to be honest with you. I, I can't afford those shoes. Oh, no, 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 Mr. Jones is taking care of it. And then all of a sudden they bring out the second pair of shoes and he said he insisted on you having two. So that was, oh, God, that was, what, seven years ago and they've only just, the second pair's only just blown out in the last six months. Wow. So, that's a great story yeah. about the little things that I guess people wouldn't see when they sort of, uh, I mean, it's been spoken about. Alan's been very generous with people over the years and he always appreciates an underdog and some of the causes that he's perhaps chosen people look at in a weird sort of way. But I think what you sort of illustrated there is that he's got time for just about everyone mm-hmm. um, and that situation. I'm amazed by that story and I've never heard it before, but um, I'm not totally surprised given the people that I've spoken to previously about the private side of, of, of what, he, what he does. So did he give you any tips in terms of how you were driving his car? Because no, the cars said, you were driving, they were pretty good. They were pretty schmick. Yeah, no, the old, uh, the old Merc, the Dar. No, he, he seemed to have this oh, – I'll tell you another thing that I, he, he never lets me forget. He told me that he needed to go to um, – uh, well, what I was told was Homebush, the Superdome. Anyway, so, so Alan gets in the car. I get in the car to drive him and then he, he dozes off you know, basically halfway out the driveway. And so, you know, I start driving out to the Superdome and we start pulling past, you know, Silverwater Jail on the way out to, to Sydney Olympic Park. And he wakes up and he was meant to be at the entertainment centre and I got written down on his diary wrong. Oh. So I, I copped it for that. So, yeah, he never lets me forget the time that I took him to, to the wrong to the wrong <laughs> arena. But, no, he, uh, he was always good. There was never any, you know, you know, you made the wrong turn here, none of that. He was, he was pretty good. And you progressed to eventually work on his staff on the actual breakfast program. Yeah, I did. Pr- yeah, program. Yeah, yeah. Tell, so, me, tell me about that because there's a lot of people that work on there and there's been a loyal staff that's oh, been yeah. with him for such a long time and they're such a, um, such a tight-knit sort of group and they, they have to be because, you know, of the, the, just the sheer volume of, and I hate to use this term, correspondence that Alan gets <laughs> yes. sent. It's an um, army of correspondence. Yeah, that he has to deal with on a on a regular basis and also present the program. What was it like being part of that stuff? It's it's a real it's an institution. It's the, the, the Jones Show team is in itself, you know, 
an institution because, I mean, you've got the likes of, of Paul Christensen, who has been there with Alan pretty much the entire time, knows how the guy works back to front. Uh, Dan Mullins, who's been there for, you know, not not as long, but he's been there for well over a decade now. Um, you know, he's got, you know, he's T- Tonya, who's his, uh, I think she may still be his uh, EA. She still looks after, um, you know, his day-to-day work. Um, you got James Willis, who now looks after his phones. He's been there for five years. Before that, Gavin Carmody, uh, he was there for five years. So once you're in there, you, you're in there. And and I'll, I'll say it's a reflection on how Alan treats his staff. Uh, you know, you are you are treated like his family. You know, if there's a Christmas party, there's no differentiating between the the biggest person in the room, the littlest person in the room, everyone's everyone's treated the same, and um, and it goes back to his generosity. And when you when you work for a bloke who who treats you well, you want to you know treat him well in kind, and 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 that's that's very much the feeling among among that show, um, you know. And that was that was a great time working, and you know, and and they're all a good bunch of people, you know, all the people that have been there and, you know, and again, I'm fortunate to still, you know, speak to Paul all the time and, you know, particularly in this job, we, we talk, you know, every so often about, you know, politics and stuff, but, but, um, I still consider all those guys great mates. And what's it like working behind the scenes in that environment? Because it's a high pressure, high energy sort of environment Mm -hmm. because Alan is who he is and he likes to present things in a very, factual manner so you've got to provide those facts and and you've got to have all of that information ready mm. so he can use at his disposal well i will i will also say that the research that goes into that program is unbelievable and and the facts that you have to have that they have to be accurate they have to be basically alan goes on air and he has to trust that what you produced for him is is 100% accurate. And there is so much correspondence. And again, we don't like using the word, but that, yeah. And as he would say, his listeners are his best researchers. So he would have all these, yeah, all, all the emails from people who were saying, I oh, have investigated that. And I would, I would say probably half, half the stuff that is done behind the scenes might not even make it on air because that's the thorough checks that go on. And to the point where if Alan says, I'll oh, check that out, you might check it out and there might be nothing to it. But mm. if there is something to it, you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to be a big story. Mm. So that's the that's the, the the method behind it is, and quite often with 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 Alan's program, it's many many aspects of it are done sort of a day in advance or, or two days in advance, or even sometimes you're working on a story for a week or a month. Um, so that's you know, and it's quite satisfying that something you've produced for so long can can come together. Uh, so yeah, it's it it's demanding, but bloody rewarding when. Yeah, you know, it comes off, and and Alan has you know what he needs to do, and all of a sudden he's got a you know a, a minister on, or a, you know a, a bureaucrat, and he's asking them the tough questions that you basically were able to get the facts to for him to deconstruct. You also work for a few others on programs, as they like to say, within the the building. You work with Jason Morrison yep. for a while. I I understand you also work for for Ray Hadley on his his show. Again, I guess these guys are. All different in personalities, but still have a high standard that mm. they want their staff to uphold. Yeah, I should say another guy who was incredible for me was Jason Morrison. He's another guy who always went into bat for me. Um, again, he he personally requested that I leave Alan's show to go work for him, um, which was a massive, you know, a massive thing for me. Like that was. Because they all work in silos, right? You know, as much as they're part of a team and it's all yeah, yeah, seen yeah. as, as matey-mateys, essentially 
the Alan Jones show, the Ray Hadley show, you know, back in the day, the Philip Clark show, yep. the, the Jason Morrison show, mm-hmm. the Chris Smith show, they're all focused on producing content for that their own program. Correct. So they're all in some ways, and this is not a, a criticism, but it's a fact, they're all blinkered. Yep. They, they, they know that the radio station as a whole has to work together, but the programs themselves are quite often their own entities. Absolutely. And a good example would be, say, you you know, if you're working on the drive show and you've booked an interview in and then all of a sudden the story breaks and the afternoon show want to speak to that person, you're, you know, you're, you're effectively fighting other teams and you're still on the one team, but you're right. You're so blinkered that, you know, and, you know, and it comes down to loyalty as well. You know, I'm, and pretty much everyone I've worked for, I've been fiercely loyal to. So, you know, and, and Jason's a bloke who gives you the loyalty back, you know, as he has sort of in, in future, um, gigs that he's in down the track. Um, so he's, he's someone who, um, was, you know, a great, a great help to me, um, through, throughout that time. And he sort of got me into probably the, the finer arts of producing because he's such a, you know, he's arguably the best newsman in Sydney or New South Wales. You know, his his read for what is a story and what isn't a story is second to none. He, he can tell you, mate, that's going to be a massive story weeks out from when it is or to the contrary. Someone will go with a massive yarn and they'll dedicate three hours of their show to it and no one gives Force a rat's right. ass. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was a good stepping stone to then move into uh, working for, for Ray Hadley, which I but basically come full circle because when I started um, in 05, I was sort of, you know, hanging around Ray's show and I was helping out, you know, the producer's head at the time. Uh, and I'd always worked on the footy with him. So throughout the entire time, I worked on the continuous call team behind the scenes. And then, yeah, finally did full circle and, and came back and produced with, with Ray, which was, I'd say of all the things, that was probably the most rewarding time I've had at, at, at 2GB working for, working for Ray. Um, I mean, at the time it was, you know, we were going through the, God, the, the 08 election and the, what, the 2011 election, whenever you're working around those things. And again, Ray's, Ray's his own personality, but he is so trusted by, say, police or by certain politicians that you might not know it, but if he's got a tip, it's generally come from the horse's mouth. And working in that environment where you know that a big story is about to break later on today and you know it from straight from the horse's mouth. So Ray will say, Oh, this is a yeah, big story is going to happen today. Just be ready for this. It's going to happen about this time. And all of a sudden, that's what happens. Yeah. You know, that to, to work for someone like that is a, it's pretty awesome. You know, you can, you can work for a bloke who is making the news, you know, and that's what we found a lot of the time that, you know, TV crews would quite often have Ray on in their office because he would break the news of the day. What's it like sitting there behind the scenes and having to, I guess, deal with those? different personalities because they are all different and Mm -hmm. as I said before it's a high pressure environment so things are sometimes said that perhaps shouldn't be said but as far as I'm concerned that's part of the cut and thrust of everyday media. You know what it's it's a good point you make mate because I reckon I may be probably one of the last I, I don't want to think this but I think I might be one of the last people that was able to sort of cop a blow up per se. Um, I think my generation can cop it, um, but I think I may have been one of the last to to cop it and move on without having a sock. And I think, you know, as has happened, um, you know, 
quite prominently since, um, you know, even in my time working for Ray, you know, there were people that, to be brutally honest, deserved a tickle up. And that's not, that's not being critical of them, but no. when you're not good at your job and you go around bagging people, eventually the person you're bagging is going to come around and give you a tickle up. So when that happens, you know, harden up, mate. Um, but I'm, I'm saying that from someone who, you know, that I was, you know, given the tough love and, you know, I can take it as much as I can dish it out. But working for those, for those sort of personalities, it's, it's a, it's a trait you have to have. If you, if you let it get to you, you know, they, these guys, it's not personal. Well, majority of the time it's not personal. No. Um, so if they give you a serve, it's, I can tell you with Ray, I don't think he ever gave me a serve for something that I actually didn't do wrong. I, I had stuffed up. Same with Alan. If I ever got a serve, it was because I cocked up. Um, you know, but it's what you, it's how you respond to it. You know, if you, if you, if you stuff up and then, you know, five minutes later, you need, you, you need to be on, you know, you can't sort of sulk because if you do that and you stuff up again, you're just going to get blown up twice as hard. So it's how you respond to the criticism. And that's the stuff that impresses these guys. I, I like to think if you, it's how you respond to, to, to making mistakes. And when you make a mistake, you know it. Um, but it's how you respond. So I also teach you, I guess, fundamental, Principles of accuracy and oh yeah, just making sure all your ducks in a are in a row, so that you know you don't want to mislead the public and make your presenter look like an idiot. Because essentially, that's why you're copping a spray if you make a mistake. Because ultimately, they're going out with information that you provided, mm. and if that information's wrong, you deserve the kick in the ass. Well, the, the the trust trust is probably a key word here, because particularly with a program like the Ray Hadley Morning Show, you were dealing with a lot of court issues and police issues and to be really honest if you stuff up information in regards to a court case you know it's not me who's going to be in front of the judge it's going to be ray so he has to trust absolutely that what i'm giving him is the correct information and and that's why you know and you're fortunate you you know working with him he had pretty good common sense for what you know you could say and what you couldn't say um but going back to what what you say is exactly what they need to read I know of some radio announcers who, you know, basically in the interview you have to, you know, write questions and if it's a sad question you've got to put in brackets, sigh. You know, that that is legitimately some some radio announcers. I don't know if you Mate, it goes back to frontline, mate. It's just, I'm uh, telling you, it, it, it's, it's true and I've had to do that. Fortunately, none of the uh, full-time people I've ever had to work with have had to do that yeah. too. Um, yeah, so that, that it's, 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 a, it's a challenging thing but I think that's also the most – rewarding thing again about about radio the immediacy that if there's a, a sentence handed down and all of a sudden you know with tv you got to get the pictures you got to get the script you got to get a journal you got to get the camera you got to get the lighting with radio i just smash it out on a bit of paper and stick it in ray's face you know and he has to trust that what i'm giving is correct and then all of a sudden between something happening and giving it to him you're looking at 10 seconds and that's that's the that's the best part about what you would do for him the live aspect of radio I know this sounds like a bit of a wank, but did you find that you became more worldly or more well-rounded by working on these shows? Because ultimately, you know, you might have your areas of, of interest in life, but in any given day, given the news of the day, you might be dealing with a complex court case, you might be dealing with a, a massive sporting story, there might be a business story, there might be an education story, there's all these things that are all put together in the melting pot that you have to get your head around and then make sure that 
in in many cases, I mean, Ray and Alan and Jason and so forth are, are very switched on and smart sort of guys. So it's not necessarily that you'd have to force feed them, but you still would have to get across a whole heap of information that you might not necessarily have had any interest in whatsoever and then deliver it to them with confidence. Absolutely. I mean, when you when you start the day, I mean, as, as you'd know, when you start a, a day working for a program like that, you, you go through every story of the day. And the story of the day may be something to do with the Reserve Bank interest rates. I couldn't give a rat's ass about that. So all of a sudden I have to learn what I'm talking about as opposed to, you know, what's going on you know, in the footy this weekend or a police case that you, you know a lot about. Because Ray will ask me a question. Alan will ask me a question, and I get have to, I have to know the answer to it. So you you do you you're spot on. You find yourself having to to learn. You know, half the time you just wing it and hope that what you were saying was right. But but um, that's what it came down to: making sure it was accurate. So you'd have to you you couldn't just you couldn't just wing Fudge it. You, it you, yeah. you, you needed to know what you were talking about. So so you're right to be to be well rounded was essential. You, you you had to to know every every story back to front because, like I said, if, if you get asked a question, you're going to need to produce the answer pretty quick. So did it get to a point where you were looking for a new challenge? Is that why you left 2GB? Was there any inkling to go, I don't know, to the opposite number, which was 2UE? I mean, Jason moved across there and there was a, a few people that moved across to produce or to, to look after him and there was like a whole new era at 2UE, I think, at that stage about the time that you were thinking about mm-hmm. leaving. Um, why did you decide to, to then move on? I'll say I'll say that I'd, I'd seen people leave uh, 2GB in many offices and some people just didn't probably go around about, that, around about it the right way. You know, there's ways that you should, you know, leave places and stick solid with, you know, uh, who, where you're leaving. So I never wanted to sort of do the dirty on on Ray, particularly everything he'd done for me. Um, but there came a time where I wasn't really progressing, and which was fine, but, you know, for me to get ahead of that stage, I was about 20, 26, 27, um, you know, veteran of 2GB by that stage. <laughs> um, and then I I thought, you know, I'll, I'll dabble in TV. You know, it's the obvious jump, radio to TV. Um, so that was when, you know, I, I wasn't a journo, so I wasn't really going to, be able to get a job working at you know, Channel Nine or Channel Seven or, or Channel Ten or anything like that. So I sort of you know threw all my chips in producing, and I thought, well, if I'm going to give this a crack, I can't jump straight into there anyway. So I'll I'll try something a bit more, you know, where I can learn my craft. So I uh, Gavin Carmody, who I mentioned before, he worked over at Sky Racing, and uh, he mentioned that they were looking for producers. So I thought, oh, I'll throw my hat in the ring, and and there we go. Sort of uh, in the start of 2013. I think I yeah started at started at the great sky racing. How did you find that environment? It would have been vastly different from what you'd experienced at at two GB. Uh, were you a ra- interested in racing, or was it more so using it as a stepping stone to learn a, a bit of TV without the pressure of what you would have had if you were working for a Channel Nine or a, a Channel Seven? Primarily, I wanted to learn my craft there and, and move on. So that that was the obvious thing that I wanted to do from the get go. My passion for racing extends to the pub and the tab and a beer in my hand. I 
wasn't good with, you know, training gallops and what am I looking for? And this is a three year old, you know, yearling. And I, I, I didn't get that stuff. I, you know, I would, I would sit there and that'd just be like a completely foreign language to me. I'll correct you there. A yearling is a one year old. Yeah. There not you a go. Three-year-old. So, there, thank, thank you. So as you can see, I was a marvelous success at my, uh, uh you know, mate, that should have been like interest rates. I should have uh, studied a little bit harder. Ah, uh, yeah, exactly. So yeah, but that wasn't, that wasn't essential to know that you were never going to get nah. that for, for, for stuffing that up. So that was, um, yeah, look, but at the end of the day, those channels are made to make money and make people punt. So I came with that headspace. So I would suggest things that would make people want to punt. So that made me valuable. Um, you know, I could always go and ask, you know, some other bloke in there who studies the form guide, oh, mate, how should I go about this? And he'll give yeah. me that advice. My advice was to talk to dribblers because I am one. I can relate quite well. <laughs> We'd known each other for about, uh, I think, eight or nine years. We actually worked together at Sky Racing, and well, that, that was, was blast. definitely an experience. And for those actually listening, I went by the name of John Redmond for about three months while I was working there because they couldn't sort out their email system, which was quite hilarious between the pair of us. I mean, because you, you used to play it up as if it was the world's greatest, you know, incident, whereas you were quite happy to let me shrink. No, I, I, I just think it was just obscene that I was the person training you and I was still on my training wheels and that was yeah. how it operated. And, and you just, you came in every day and I'm not even certain people would ever, like, even acknowledge you. You just sort of came in and you just sort of, you, you, you did your work perfectly and then you were just like, oh, that's Ralph. He's just going to fill a shift on the roster. And they, you were just left to, left out to dry. But oh, it was an interesting experience, let me t- tell you. But it was, it was fun at the same time. But uh, like you, I guess I thought I knew racing. But then I just realized that I was pretty much like a muck punter. Although having said that, you know, I've got a fair interest in the history of racing and all that and all that kind of thing. But then you had to get across like greyhounds and harness racing mm. and all that kind of stuff as well, which, you know, wasn't my bag. But having said all of that, there were some wonderfully generous and gifted and talented people that, oh, that yeah. work at, at Sky Racing. Absolutely. And, and that's that's probably the, the key point. I mean, there are many aspects of it that, you know, <laughs> run like a dog's breakfast. But um, there are some people there that uh, are – you know, part of the pun stable mates of, you know, who are, you know, of the, of the TV industry are, are great. I mean, Marto, Andrew Martin, who, who, you know, used to work at Nova for years is now there doing a, a gun job. Um, Matt Browning, who hosts, uh, most, well, most of the shows on there, he could get a job on any TV network. I, I honestly think he could only host the Today Show, but, you know, they, they look after these guys and, you know, he, you know, he, he is a gun job. He, he's a gun at his job. Um, so there are some amazing people that, that, that work at Sky Racing. You know, Gab's one of them. Gab's, you know, our mate. He's, he's still there kicking goals, but, um, Sky Racing, it, it, it was a, it was a good place to learn the craft of TV. Um, cause they weren't, you know, with all due respect there, they weren't like your 2GB where if you made a mistake, you'd cop it right up the, the date. You know, they'd allow you to make a few little errors. And, and, and in many ways, that's, that's not a bad thing if you're learning your craft. Um, and, and look, to be honest with you, the, the team that that we worked with there—I mean, most of the team we worked with there were—they were professional. It's not—it's not, it's not mm. anything to do with professionality. It was just, um, you know, you, you weren't working for Fox Sports, you weren't wor- working for Channel Ten, you weren't working for Channel Nine. Um, you know, it was—it was a niche market. 
and you know, and I think both of us coming from a radio background realised that um, perhaps the standards weren't as high well, as what they were at those other environments. Yeah, like we we probably both have zero tolerance for for fuck ups, and I think it's a place. Yeah, no, it's not just places like that. It's yeah. just you know, you could get away with probably a little bit more. That's all. Let's then talk about the next move. So it was from Sky Racing to Sky News. How did that mm-hmm. all come about? That came about. Again, I just thought it was a bit of progression to go from Sky Racing, um, you know, where I learned a bit of the craft, uh, to to Sky News. It was a yeah, news is the passion for me. Um, so I, I got back um, there in touch with Ian Ferguson, who um, you know, another legend of of Sydney newsrooms, who I worked with at Two GB, um, and he basically gave me a a, uh, a kickstart, and he got me into the building, and um, I was generally just doing news producing. I learned pretty quickly that TV is just not my thing. Just, I think that was the same with me at Sky Racing. I thought I could I could do it, and I thought that that was the the thing that I could sort of hang my hat on the fact that I'd love racing and the fact that you know I I understood the coverage and all of that kind of thing. But to me, I like the fact that when you're producing radio or when you're writing the news and you're reading the news, you're in control of it. Whereas in these TV environments, you're relying on too many other people to do that part of the job. So mm. the fact that there was a different crew every day mm. didn't allow you to settle into your, your stride and, and mm. build up that trust and that relationship with those people um, because you worked in a different sort of way. I I've, I've tend to find that there's a whole lot of people doing all of the things to put that one piece to wear, whereas I was used to doing it all myself. That's exactly right. <laughs> and and it's, it's not a... And you're not by doing it. You're not a control freak because no. quite often you, you, you know, in in radio you still ask people for advice and things like that. But if there was a breaking news story, the fact that I couldn't just get it and give it to the announcer without having the pictures, like yeah. I said before, without having the the vision, without having the graphics with it, without having the supers on the bottom of the screen and all that sort of stuff that you're relying on other people to produce, quite often you just I'd end up pulling my hair out. Yeah. And, and to be honest, I wasn't that good at it anyway. So I wasn't. The, the technical side of things, I was just not crash hot at working with a, you know, the way that their, their procedures worked. So, um, so in saying that, Sky News was, you know, and there were, again, with every place that you work, there are some pretty incredible people that were teaching, were teaching me what to, what to do. And they're people that are, are now going on to bigger and better things in the world of TV. But, well, um, I guess it's, it, it comes back to that whole thing. And the way I sort of approach it now is just like, You've either got it or you don't. So mm. there are people that are technically minded that combine all of those facets and put them together, and that's what they do. There are other people that are really good at talking about things off the top of their head because that's what they do. Yep. You know, and there's other people that can do a little bit of everything. It gets to that point where you've got to be strong enough and identify, like you did earlier in your career, to say, well, you know what? That on-air stuff, that's not my bag. My mm. bag is this. And, again, you don't find out until you experience it, yep. which is what I think everybody should be encouraged to do. But when you find something that you like and you're particularly good at it, stick to it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that was why sort of towards the, you know, in fairness, I was only at Sky, Sky News for, for a matter of months. Um, but that was very early on there. I'd it was, you know, I should have clicked at Sky Racing, but I thought, oh, maybe it was just the Sky Racing. But um, no, nah, once I was at Sky News, I basically came to the conclusion that I wasn't very bloody good. And you, you, 
to be honest, if I'm working with someone, I'd rather them acknowledge that and get out rather than try and stick at it and stink. Yeah. Um, you know, as you see in many careers around the place, if you stink, just go somewhere else that you're better. Mm. You'll enjoy it more and you'll be better at it, you know. People won't be just getting the shits at you all the time. Well, you don't want to go into work every day and have that trepidation factor of am I going to get through today without making a mistake. For me, it's all about like enjoying what you do. So yep. that's a huge factor of it. And if you're going to be shit scared every time you walk into the building, it's not worth it. It's well, not- I remember at Sky News, the day that uh, Barry O'Farrell resigned, I, it was a day off, and I just remember the sense of relief that I wasn't working that day. Uh, when yeah, it all happened sort of quite early in the morning, and that was the shift that I would normally have. But that day, I had a day off, and I just thought, God, if I if I was there, I wouldn't have been able to handle it. I just, everything about it just freaked me out, and I think that was the moment that I thought, no, this is this isn't for me. How was it then that you ended up working for Minister Stuart Ayres in the the government? Because then, obviously, it's taking a step away from media, which is something that you obviously enjoyed. Well, I've always had a I mean, like you can't work for, for, for Alan Jones and Ray Hadley without having a passion for politics. So the, the passion was always there. Uh, now, uh, Sophie Onickel, who I worked with with Ray, Ray many years before, again, another gun producer in, in Sydney media, uh, she had come over to, to Stuart uh, a few months earlier, I think in the, in the January of, what, 2014. And um, at that point, like I said, Stu had just been um, made police minister following the um, O'Farrell reshuffle after he resigned. And uh, she, she needed another media person and she reached out. Uh, so I, I came in here and uh, met with met with Stu. I liked how he operated. Stu's, he, he's quite a young minister. Um, they've got a, you know. He's a bit of a doer, isn't he? Like uh, if you just even from the outside looking in, you can see that he has got like a unwavering determination in 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 what he does. Yeah, and and this this is probably something that I, I I don't necessarily like about the way our media works is quite often people mistake ambition for arrogance, and if you're ambitious, being ambitious is the kind of thing that gets Sydney 1.6 billion dollars in stadiums. That's and that's just an example of things that yeah you know, that he has done. So that when when people sit there and say, oh, you know, he's a bit ambitious, or he's a bit this, or he's a he's a doer, and he gets, you know, would you would you rather nothing done? Would you rather someone just sit on their hands and say, oh, I'm a politician, I'm I'm just going to coast here for a few years and then get my pay out and then you know piss off and get some high paying job for some financial company for the rest of my life? No, you know, he, he, yeah. So that was what really appealed to me. You know, that was one of the first things he said. He said, we're not, you know, we're not here to muck around. We, you know, you never know how long you're going to be in the job, how long you're not going to be in the job. You know, if you're going to come, you're going to work. Um, I also like he he has a pretty firm, to quote him, a no dickhead policy. Um, so that appealed to me just in previous lives having to, yeah, deal with dickheads. I was quite comfortable not having to work in an office with any. Mm. So um, so he's been So a take, great me, boss. take me through that first portfolio. Ray Hadley likes mm-hmm. to focus a lot on crime, so that would have given you a good ins for the fact that you would have had a lot of dealings with police media and, and yeah. police and the commissioner and all of those important people that are in that round. So that would have given you a strong mm-hmm. grounding in, I guess, the expectation or what Stuart was, was about being in charge of that particular portfolio. Well, the good thing that 
that I brought to the table, I'd say, was was knowing when a police minister should pop their head up and when let the experts talk. Um, and quite often there, there are so many aspects of the police portfolio that are just completely operational. Um, but quite often there would be things that, you know, need, you need to have a political head and that's where, you know, we would give Stu that advice saying, you know, this is probably something that, you know, is quite important that we need to, you know, we need to go out strong on or, or mate, we don't know enough about this, let the experts talk about it. Because if you set a precedent and you start, um, and that's something that I thought was, you know, he, he did very well. If there was something that a lot of other politicians would have just tried to get their heads on TV, the next time something like that happens and it's not good, you're going to have to show up again. So just because something good happens operationally doesn't mean that you should always pop your head up and go, oh, how good was that? Because when it goes tits up, they're going to expect you to pop your head up again. So know, knowing that, having that sort of, you know, knowing what people will expect from you if you set precedence, uh, that was that was pretty important. Um but even from there, we also did um, emergency services. So we had um, fire and rescue, yep. uh, which, you know, obviously they did, you know, the, the amazing stuff they do, rural fire service, which well, they do incredible stuff and then volunteers. So um, so working with those guys, it was you, it was good because you'd, you'd sort of be working in this political environment, but every day you were dealing with people on the front line and that was what was kind of refreshing that if there was some, you know, other shit going on in here, you could, you know, talk to any of those guys and they'd be like, oh, well, you know, there was a, you know, road fatality last night and some, you know, mum's not going home to her kids. And you'd be like, okay, yeah, no worries. And that was sort of, that was always a, you'd always, so in that sense, it's a good, it's a good portfolio to have to keep your feet on the ground. Um, And again, having, Stu was quite a, he was a young minister uh, when he, when he got that portfolio, you know, taking someone with a bit of enthusiasm for the job is never a bad thing. And then so to move to then, what is it, sport and tourism now, although he had the sport portfolio yeah, so as we part had- of that, that was, that seemed like ministers these days seem to have more responsibility than ever before across a number of different areas. So do, I guess, use your and Sophie's radio background mm. really would have helped him get across issues in different areas, which, you know, I'm sort of speaking out of school here, but I'm, I'm sure he would have looked at that and thought, Okay, I'm glad that I've formulated this good team that has this well-rounded knowledge. Well, for, for instance, something like well, he, after the election, he got trade, tourism, major events, and sport. Now, the great thing about sport was that up until that point, he'd been sports minister for about a year, so he developed all those great relationships. So he was pretty good with sport. In in regards to the trade, tourism, and major events, that was another thing that that both Soph and I had to to get our heads around. So while he, he can't be focusing on everything at one time. So again, it's, it's a very similar to, to, to an announcer. You have to rely on your team to, to get you the information that you need when you need it. So, and as I've only learned, uh, you know, in the last few months, you may have some massive raging story on in sport. And at the same time, there's some crisis going on in tourism or, or trade or, you know, there, there's some other issue going on that you have to, that you have to deal with. And then, You've just got the normal day-to-day stuff, so that that's something that a, a minister does rely pretty heavily on, you know, their media team to to know what is an important story and what can probably you know put off to the side for a little bit. What would you say would be the main differences between politics and media? Control in 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 media, you probably don't realise the control, the power you have. Power is probably the better word. Um, you know. In here, you have media monitors, you have clips, you have the Google alerts. 
anytime your boss gets named, depending on what it is, you, your whole day can get turned upside down. So if, if I get a call from someone from the Ray Hadley show or to UE or, you know, or Channel 9 or whatever, depending on their request, it can completely destroy my day. Not, not destroy it in a, you know, it's going to be a bad day because sometimes it's good to, it could be a good story, but you don't realize that if Ray bags my boss on air, that completely, yeah, turns me upside down. And that'll turn other officers upside down, the department upside down. You don't realize that, and yeah, sometimes if you make a request for something, the domino effect of what that can cause, um, I probably didn't fully appreciate until I started, you know, working in a place like this. Um, you know, if you, if you made an inquiry about, oh, we want to speak to the minister about, about this issue, the, the free, the, the, not the fallout, but the procedures that you then have to go through from, you know, the measure advisor to the, the policy person, then you've got, you know, you might speak to your chief of staff, then get that information from the department and then the department media person. Then this, by the time it comes to it, right, it's midday and Ray's gone off air, you know, so it's, it's. And, and has managed to bag you for an hour and a half. Because you didn't come on the air. And, and in the meantime, you know, he's just hammering you and hammering and hammering you. But so you ha- almost sometimes just have to, Back yourself and say to as you know, much as you want to get on the the front foot, you've got to cop your whack because of the procedural correct. things that are going yep. on and behind then, the scenes. So then it's your job to try and put them at bay and say, "Oh, well, no, we can't come on today, but can we come on tomorrow?" Or my boss, you know, he's unavailable; he's in a meeting, and um, that's probably another thing. I, I to to the contrary, when I worked in radio, I when a media advisor would say, "Oh, he's in a meeting or he's on a plane," I'd think, "Yeah, right, getting the fob." Yeah, mate. I, I'm, honestly, he's. I've never seen a diary like my boss's. It's just disgusting. Like I, I, that is enough to turn off anyone from ever becoming a politician. It is horrendous. So if I was ever to work on the other side again, and people say he's in a meeting, I probably wouldn't second guess it. They're in a meeting. What's it like to have to be part of the the ministry and be associated with the premier? Because again, the premier's got his own staff mm-hmm. and. Sometimes there would be a correlation between what you're doing and whether it has to involve the premier or the premier yeah. staff. So yeah, again, that's another area that I guess, like the radio situation, is that you would be working in silos again on the same team, but competing as yeah. well. No, no, no. Well, it's, it's it's fair because we are so fortunate that we have, you know. Mike Baird is the the premier who I work for because he's the you know the most popular politician probably in the history of New South Wales, um, you know. So so we sort of you know you have that luxury of of you, well to be brutally honest you don't have a, a premier who's trying to take you know great announcements from other people which may have happened in in previous years or previous governments um, because he doesn't need the the limelight if he doesn't necessarily need it, you know, so which which is great because it allows the ministers of those portfolios to be the minister for their portfolio. So which is, you know, so our, our relationship with their officers has always been great because, you you know, he, he allows, you know, particularly when you're the minister for major events, I can imagine a lot of other governments in Australia, if you are the minister for major events, you'll have, you know, you know a premier who wants to come and take the limelight. You know that doesn't happen here. Then, and, and again, it comes back to it's a the working relationship with other other officers. Um, you know, you you always hear the stories. You know, particularly other people who worked in, for instance, the former 
Labor government. And yeah, I'm not going to, you know, bullshit that, yeah, there are obviously everyone has day to day issues, but fundamentally everyone gets along. So there's never any sort of major, major issues with other officers around here. Is it hard to cop when your boss gets criticism? We spoke about it a little bit earlier about how, you know, sometimes ambition gets misconstrued for arrogance or some other form. Is it difficult when a journo runs an agenda or continues to try to, I guess, usurp the importance of, of your boss and what he's trying to achieve in his ultimate objectives, that you've got to bite your tongue and sit on the sidelines or yeah. provide good advice? Being a politician, you've got to have thick skin. Mm-hmm. So they'd be used to copying it. But at times, you're also a human being. Yep. So some of this stuff can be so far wrong and hurtful. Mm-hmm. What's it like being the guy that's standing next to the guy? Well, I'll say to start, Stuart is a hell of a lot more resilient than me. So when, for instance, we had, you know, with the issues with stadiums going on and people who have never met him wouldn't know who he is if he, you know, walked down the street, any of that, uh, calling for his head. And people who, you know, they were basing this bloke on one issue. And, you know, so people who were bagging him for being the sports minister weren't taking into account that, you know, on a Tuesday night, He's presenting certificates at a Taekwondo tournament. And then on a Sunday afternoon when everyone else is at the pub having a beer, he's at a badminton tournament. Now, all these things that, you know, might, you might not see, but vested interests all of a sudden because he may be making a decision that isn't going to get you your million dollar bonus. That's, you know, all of a sudden you start hiring PR companies to basically start undermining and character assassinating. A person who really you're only just you just dispute one decision he's made. Um, I found that pretty tough. Um, I would love nothing more than to jump on Twitter and start bagging the people that did it. And you know there are quite there are quite some. Um, and, and I say this as someone who's not. I'm not you know, you know putting anyone up on a pedestal here. And I you know everyone has their faults, but some of the some of the responses and some of the journalism and things like that, being on the other side of the fence as well, um, I think are just frankly shocking. Like some of the things that are said about people and, and you know, for, but mainly just people who don't know what they're talking about and they get these platforms to um, to do what they do. And, again, it's a lot of the time it's vested interests and, um, you know, whether it's uh, people gunning for other someone else's job so you undermine you know, you get someone to undermine the minister and then they, you know, do a, you know, shit story on Stu during an election campaign or or on the contrary, you have, you know, for instance, during the stadium stuff, you had, you know, clubs aligned to a particular stadium who it was only in their vested interest to make money go to their stadium. So all of a sudden they're undermining my boss because he has a different opinion and then it's just sort of... I've never seen any stitch-up stories that don't have a vested interest. It's very rare for someone to go and attack uh, a politician based on facts alone. Facts alone. They're, they're, that's one thing I've I've learnt pretty strongly that if someone comes after you, as in a journal, there's probably someone else stoking the fire. This the thing also is that now more people than ever have or feel as though they have the right to express their opinion, which has changed the media landscape, particularly in the newspaper environment where circulations aren't what they used to be and 
the drive for online is driven by clicks mm-hmm. and by views of articles. So therefore, people that perhaps may have been straight down the line journalists in days gone by are now heavy hitters when it comes to opinion pieces. And mm-hmm. I think opinion pieces now tend to dominate the actual factual reporting of things, which I don't necessarily think it's a great thing. And it's also the public then is allowed to climb aboard these bandwagons mm-hmm. and to drive these agendas, which are, are driven just purely based on the fact that a columnist wants more people to read his particular article. Yep. And, that, and you, you, you raise a good point about clickbait. Because it's no longer a headline has to be so outrageous that it gets one way or another. Correct, exactly. You can't, you know. And so you've got all the, you know, the, you know, the, the Andrew Bolts of the world and the, you know, all those guys and yeah, the, who just come up with these, you know, outrageous headlines and then have such a a, a view that is so outrageous. You know, half the time it's, you know, they just literally do it just to get to get readers or viewers or, or whatever they need. And, and that's, that's something that you have to deal with. So when I'm, when you come into, the, to, to this role and, and you get things like that about, you know, your boss or, or, you know, you see it happen to other bosses and things like that, you sort of, you do feel sorry for, you know, the targets because they're not really, half the time it actually isn't personal. And I know for a fact that there are quite a few people who went after, who went after Stuart, um, during the, the whole stadium saga who think he's a great guy. And, and I know that they think he's a great guy because he, you know, to his credit, Stu's credit, he still talks to these people. I wouldn't if they wrote what they wrote about him. But, um, you know, he still treats them with the respect that, quite frankly, they probably don't deserve. But it's not personal. They, and they, they say it to you, oh, mate, it wasn't personal. I just did this. Or, oh, mate, forget the stitch up. You know, it wasn't personal against him. Mate, when you're calling for someone sacking over something that you just disagree, it's not like you did something illegal. It's not like you did anything you know, before ICAC or anything like that. You start being treated like a, a, a criminal, then... You know, that's fair enough. But if you're basically hammering a bloke because he had the balls to go and say, hey, yeah, Sydney deserves some good stadiums and I'm going to go and prosecute the case why we should have, you know, more money than has ever been given to sport and you're going to get called the worst sports minister in the world. You can't, you can't win. We'll wrap it up in a sec. But before we go, I just want to get some advice from you for anyone looking to make their way into media. What would you say to those people that, have it in their mind to make it a career in in media? I think the key thing is, like we said before, make yourself indispensable. Always say yes to any opportunity. You might not get paid for it. You'd just put your hand up to, to do something out of the ordinary. If you if it means you're going to have to come in on a weekend and do something, you'd do it. Or if, you, if there's another job opportunity, go and do that because you never know when the job you're just coasting in is going to end and you can get an opportunity there. And I can tell you this, there's still things that I do today that you go above and beyond to to help someone because I don't know when down the track they may need to help me and I'm going to rely on them. So that's it's another good way to sort of maintain good relationships, you know. And it's not being a pushover; it's you just you want to help people. So whenever someone asks you to to do something, unless you have a pretty good reason, just do it, you know. And yeah, you know, that's show people that you're enthusiastic and just. Yeah, that's that's what people want to see. People just want to see someone who's enthusiastic and, and doesn't whinge. You know, so just get on with the job. John Redmond, thanks very much for your time. Ralph Tucker, thank you for your time. There he is, John Redmond, 
media advisor to New South Wales Minister Stuart Ayres. If you really enjoyed today's chat with John, please let him know by sending him a tweet. He's at jredman102. I'm not sure what the 102 is. You can also follow us on Twitter, which is at MediaMatesAU. Check out the Facebook page. Most importantly, if you could subscribe in iTunes, that'd be great. It means you won't miss an episode. While you're there, leave a rating or review. That way more people will learn about the show. Until next time, I'm Ralph Tucker, and this has been the Media Mates Podcast. Media Mates Podcast.